Hi, and welcome to Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. I'm your host, Rupert Watson. Thank you for joining me today for what we're calling The Big Debate. Today, I'm joined by a panel of my colleagues to debate and provide opposing views on three topics in markets. What side are you on? The first topic is US interest rates and bond yields. Will they stay very low or could they rise sharply? Second, is now a good time to be investing in Japan? And finally, after a strong run, is it time to reduce high yield holdings or will returns continue to be good? So let's start with US interest rates. Where are we going from here? With the Feds likely to start tapering their bond purchases soon, attention will start to turn to when interest rates will go up and how high they will get to. Will they stay at exceptionally low levels or might they return to the sort of levels we saw before the great financial crisis? Joining me today is my colleague, Guion Moore, Head of Investment Strategy in the Pacific, and Julius Bendicas, Associate Portfolio Manager in the UK. So let's jump straight into it. Guion, perhaps you could tell us um, why you think US interest rates, bond yields, uh, might stay at exceptionally low levels for some time to come. Well, thank you, Rupert. Yes. Um, obviously, we're going through a very unusual situation right now with the pandemic and the lockdowns and the inflation spike. So it's natural to think we might be on the cusp of a new regime of higher interest rates. I don't think this is the case, which doesn't mean that interest rates won't raise, that central banks won't raise interest rates a bit over the course of the recovery, maybe 2%, but overwhelmingly for the long term, I think the pressure on interest rates is down. Firstly, I think it helps to have a bit of an historical perspective. There's a famous graph from the Bank of England, which shows the level of interest rates over the real interest rates over the past 800 years. With a few ups and downs, it shows a clear downward trend. While Julius may be calling a bottom on this 8th century trend, I believe the trend is your friend and we should expect interest rates to continue to decline. More immediately, I think the pandemic has accelerated the forces that lead, led to the long-run decline in interest rates. Firstly, there's the increased precariousness of workers, driven by accelerating automation, artificial intelligence, the gig economy and the outsourcing of jobs. Productivity growth has surged since the crisis began. I also see an increased level of monopolization among companies. This increases the power of employers versus employees. And we're now seeing this showing up in the data with real wages falling quite rapidly around the developed world while corporate profit margins surge. Secondly, there's the fiscal response to the crisis that has raised debt levels around the world. These high debt levels effectively put downward pressure on interest rates, increasing the economy's sensitivity to interest rates. And then finally, there's the climate transition. Just as the Fed had to pin interest rates low in the Second World War to finance the war, the climate transition could require zero, if not negative, interest rates. How could you possibly disagree, Julius? Thanks, Guion. Well, I think I can find ways to disagree, but let me let me first make my case, and then we can we can we can chat it out. Um, I think bond yields are going much higher. In fact, if I had to put a put a number on it over the medium term, I would call for U.S. 10-year Treasury to reach something like 4%, which is in a historical context, not that unimaginable, especially looking at, at the context pre-financial crisis. And the way I like to look at it is bond yield is effectively where the supply of capital meets demand of capital. And quite simply, over the medium term, I think demand of capital is going to be very strong. 
And that will be driven by a number of factors. Well, firstly, I expect private sector spending to be quite, quite punchy over the medium term. At the same time, I expect the governments to spend. And indeed, the crisis has shown a bit of a change in narrative in the way the governments go about their finances, prioritizing spending over tight budgets. And that is obviously accompanied by heavy issuance, which is another another positive technical factor for the bond yield. And importantly, and this is a point I'm making on climate transition, both the private and the government, the, the private sector and the government will spend loads on it. Let's just think about how capital intensive replacing the whole of electricity grid could be. It's an incredible investment. All of that will spur heavy demand for capital. Now, at the same time, on the supply side, um, which has been generally supported by net savers, aka the baby boomer generation, they are retiring, uh, moving from the point of being net savers to net dissavers or effectively consumers of capital. And I believe that is uh, that is a positive factor on the yield from the supply side. Throw on top on all of this, what I've just said, throw on top above average inflation, which is by the way, simply the policy goal. And I would, I believe over the medium term, higher inflation will persist driven by structural factors such as wage growth. And indeed, if you look at the most recent data or even anecdotal data in McDonald's where they can't find people to work, so they're letting 14-year-olds work, um, the labor market is increasingly tight, uh, which I believe will continue to push wages higher and indeed uh, support inflation on a structural basis. So altogether, high demand of capital slightly lower supply of capital because of net dissaving um, thrown on top above average inflation. I think we're talking US 10-year at 4%. And I stand by my call, Guion. So Guion, Guion, 4%. I'm 50, just had my birthday. Um, and for most of my career through the through the noughties, uh, bond yields were at four point something. Um, are we likely to return to that sort of level? I think it's very unlikely indeed. Um, I don't agree with Julius's supply and demand of capital arguments. Um, the central banks, or at least the Federal Reserve, can set interest rates along the yield curve where it likes. So we know that it can pin the short end at whatever level it likes. Similarly, it can pin through yield curve control the long end at whatever level it likes. It's about policy outcomes. Um, and the policy outcome there they will probably be trying to achieve over the course of the next decade is cheap financing for a climate transition. They simply can't afford interest rates to rise. I think that could well be the path that they take. But in my view, that would lead to elevated inflation. So in my argument, the way I carve it up, it would merely lead to slightly lower real yields or inflation-adjusted yields. But the inflation break-even or the inflation component in the yield would be much higher. Well, I mean, just as the case you were making with McDonald's. So what we're seeing is very rapid innovation in the retail sector um, to substantially reduce the kinds of, uh, you know, labour requirements involved. So, you know, at McDonald's, I just go along and I press on a bunch of buttons now to make my order. Um, we're likely to see roboticization of the actual production of the burgers and, you know, other ancillaries. Um, so I don't think that's the case. I think the, you know, the... <laughs> centuries-long trend of technical innovation will keep interest rates under the control. And we see that, you know, Japan, probably the most technologically advanced country in the world, also has the lowest interest rates in the world. On the labour market point and the McDonald's, 
Um, it's certainly true that technology, technological innovation and automation eliminate certain jobs, especially over the long term. That may not necessarily be true over the short term. Just think about trucking industry. Uh, over the long well, term, it's probably true that all of it will be self-driving, but over the short term, there's absolutely not enough people uh, that, that well, pu pushes wages I, higher. I think the data right now contradicts that. So following the crisis, we had a big drop in GDP. We're now back where we were, but there are roughly 5 million less workers. That's a huge leap in productivity, just over a one-year period. Yes, um, that, that may well be true, um, but I think as far as the long-term trend of how the labor force is structured and how productivity affects it and how automation affects it. It eliminates some jobs, but it creates new jobs and creates new 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 wage pressures in other parts. So the people that were serving at McDonald's or uh, were in the trucking industry, they can reskill and do other jobs, applying wage pressures in other parts of the economy. So I don't think that I applies- I think you're making yet another argument for faster productivity growth and more disinflationary pressure. But faster productivity growth. Sorry, I, I, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm meant to be debating in this, but this is my favourite topic, um, and so I'm struggling. I knew this would happen. I'm struggling to keep my mouth shut. Um, I should have just gone on permanent mute. Um, but presumably, faster productivity growth also implies higher real yields, Guillaume. Not if we're trying to achieve a particular policy objective. So, as I said, during the Second World War, we were confronting, you know, an existential crisis um, and it became necessary for policymakers to step in and control capital markets in a much stricter way than they'd been used to in the past. Um, but, I but, think but, sorry to interrupt, but if the, Fed, if the Fed, A, keeps interest rates at zero forever, more or less, and, or and does QE to control the yield curve, mm. then that will just lead to inflation down the road, which is what we're already... Already well, we, we didn't see that occur in Japan, and I think exactly the opposite will occur. Um, I think that with the advent of digital currencies, central bank digital currencies, um, it will become possible for central banks to do, you know, innovations like time-expiring money that will effectively be able to, whereby they, you can imagine they credit money in your bank account, but you've only got a month to spend it. That's effectively negative nominal cash rates. That's a new innovation in the way for central banks to directly control the economy. I don't think we should use Japan as a playbook for US, Europe, or the UK, or even Australia. Um, Japan has suffered from chronic um, disbelief in inflation over 20 years, which is a sort of self-reinforcing uh, self prophecy. Also in Japan, the labor markets are structurally different to the labor markets in the US. The bargaining for wages is not there. Um, even pre-crisis, they had 1.6 jobs per person and that, that didn't really lead to wage growth. I don't think the argument of Japan structurally is applicable to US and, and UK. And I believe we, we should really focus on I'm going to bring, bring this to a close. But after we've closed this video off, I'll bring the two of you together and you can you can keep going. Um, but 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 Guion, just very briefly, uh, you, you touched on we've touched on Japan. Um, let's suppose you're wrong. I know that seems highly unlikely, yeah. uh, at least to you. Um, uh, let's suppose <laughs> you're wrong. Um, and Julius is right. And US interest rates and bond yields go up to 4% mm. over the next five years or something like that. Mm. What's going to happen in Japan? I mean, Japan's been at zero for for for, for a couple of decades. Would would that be enough to, to lift Japan off zero? 
Oh well, maybe it's the case. So if we, if the if the Fed were to raise um, cash rates to four percent and drive the dollar, you know, higher and higher and higher, um, it would be effectively be importing profound deflationary pressures into its own economy um, and exporting inflationary pressures to the rest of the world. So there may be an opportunity then for um, for the Bank of Japan to start marginally raising interest rates. Uh, Julius, and, and and where would the, the Eurozone and the UK uh, sit in, in relation to that? Again, assuming you're right on US interest rates, um, you, you know, would the, would, the, would the UK, would the Eurozone also be at 4%? Before I answer, Rupert, I would say rarely I agree with Guion in, in terms of Japan. I think the the rates are are likely to move just marginally higher, but not nowhere near uh, where where the U.S. is going. So I think that's that's our that's our agreement. But as far as um, if I had to rank the other countries we just we just talked about in the other regions we just talked about, I think U.K. is following reasonably closely what the what the U.S. is doing as far as the yields, and eurozone falls in between um, Japan and U.K. But I think the narrative that I've talked about of higher spending, higher inflation, and tight labor markets is very much not just the US, but applies broadly to the developed world. So I'm going to bring that to a close and thank both Julius and Guion for what has been a stimulating debate. I'll end by sharing our view on the outlook for interest rates and bond yields. And our view is that interest and interest rates and bond yields are likely to go higher. Uh, with bond yields rising by a bit more uh, than is priced into markets at the moment. But on a central case, we're not expecting bond yields to go up to the sort of 4% level uh, Julius was talking about. We do think the outlook for economic growth over the near term is pretty good as the recovery from COVID continues. And that's likely to get the Federal Reserve to start raising interest rates in the next couple of years or so. But on a central case, we think it unlikely that they'll be raising rates aggressively. We think that economic growth um, will be uh, somewhat slower than obviously what we're seeing at the moment, um, but will be decent rather than great. And that some of the deflationary pressures that Guion was talking about uh, will come to the fore uh, over the intermediate term. And that will mean that interest rates, while going up, will go up. Uh, uh, by less. Uh, we won't get the sort of levels we saw pre the great financial crisis. And in line with the thoughts of both Julius and Guion, we would expect the UK to be closer to the US, uh, the Eurozone to be less than the UK, uh, and Japan to be less than that. Personally, I don't, I don't yet have a view for when uh, Japan will be raising interest rates. So next up is Japan. And today I'm joined by Chris Canstein, Investment Research Specialist, and Cameron Sisterman, Head of Asset Allocation in Japan. And the question we're asking, is it Japan's time to shine? Japanese equities have been loved unloved for a long time, but is the tide turning? The outlook for the economy doesn't seem to have changed enormously, but some investors are becoming more optimistic on the outlook for their equities. We'll discuss the reasons why and whether investors should invest or avoid. Chris and Cameron, thank you very much for joining me. And I'm going to start with you, Chris. Perhaps you could uh, share an outlook for the Japanese economy. Thank you, Cameron. Um, thank, thank you, Robert. Um, Japan seems to have lost its mojo in the late, late 80s crash. Cameron and Rupert will be old enough to remember this day. <laughs> since, since then, I associate Japan with gradual decline, so low economic growth, falling prices, and general pessimism. Um, cheap money is making this 
much worse like everywhere else in the world, but Japan has been addicted to low interest rates since the early 2000s already, long before we fell into this trap of monetary magic. Why is it so bad? Um, in, in, in a sound free market, companies compete for funding from investors who allocate their limited capital to the most prom promising companies. But in Japan, virtually free money allows even the least sound companies to fund themselves. How do we know if there are still any sound companies left now, or at least at attractive valuations, given how much money has been pumped into the Japanese economy? At the same time, there has been no substantial reforms in Japan since 2005, in spite of the grandiose plans that um, Prime Minister Abe revealed in 2012. So therefore, this notorious weak corporate governance in Japan still remains a problem, which means company boards have little incentive to create shareholder value and try new things. And with the current PM, Suga, now resigning after less than a year, this does not bode well for uh, future reforms either. So therefore, if I have to put my money to allocate um, to, to Asia, why would I allocate to Japan with the poor economic growth prospects and companies that have little shareholder focus when I could instead go into much more promising economies. Great. You've, you've put forward a, a lot of, uh, you come out with all guns blazing there, Chris, and you know all the arguments against investing in, in Japanese equities. Um, and, and certainly, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with you that Japan has obviously, you know, uh, been through its, its probably its, its greatest days from an economic perspective uh, in the late 80s and 90s, and potentially the long-term economic rate of growth that we might see in Japan going forward is likely to be lower than other developed economies, particularly the, the United States. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the opportunity set for an equity investor is bad or that it is an equity market that investors should be avoiding. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, I mean, we do need to bear in mind that, that, that Japan is, is very well integrated into global supply chains and particularly supply chains in the, you know, faster growing uh, Asian regions. So Japanese companies that so based on, on those that are in the topics index, which basically uh, represents a vast proportion of the, the equity market here, they get something like 40% of their revenues from outside of Japan. So regardless of, of, of what happens to the domestic growth picture here, the Jap Japanese equities are still very much leveraged towards what's happening uh, in the rest of the world and particularly in, in Asia. On monetary policy, I mean, I think you you, you did sort of, uh, you know, hint at, at, you know, Japan being very aggressive in, in monetary policy. And it's certainly true that, I mean, the Bank of Japan, they, they invented uh, quantitative easing uh, in the early 2000s. But, um, you know, Japan is certainly far from alone now. I think, you know, in, in the last, particularly in, in the last year or so with the COVID pandemic and also after the global financial crisis, we did see a lot of the other major uh, developed market central banks, and more recently some emerging market central banks, engaging in similar policies. Um, and so, you know, it's, Japan is certainly not unique in, in that regard. But one thing which is unique of its monetary policy is the Bank of Japan's direct purchase of equity and JREITs ETFs. So, for example, in addition to, you know, buying uh, government bonds and, and other fixed income assets like other central banks do in, in, in their asset purchase programs, they can also buy equity ETFs directly. Um, they're not doing that all the time. Typically, when the Bank of Japan comes into the market is when there is a significant sell or some kind of risk-off event. Uh, and that's value, valuable for equity investors because basically, uh, you know, it does provide a floor under the potential prices there. Uh, and you know the, the budget that Japan do have, the Bank of Japan have to do that is, is quite substantial. At about uh, it's about 110 billion US dollars a year. 
Camber, um, so yeah. may, may I just interject on your on your first first point about what Japan actually exports? I don't disagree with you that there's that they deeply integrate in Asian supply chains, but do they still produce the goods that are needed for the future? So over the first half of the 20th century, Japan thrived because it produced um, consumer goods such as the Walkmans that Rupert and you used when you were my age to listen to the Beatles and Rolling Stones, even though Rupert probably saw both of them live. Um, and also capital goods um, needed to manufacture these goods in, in the rest of the world, such as heavy machinery and, and, and cargo ships. But in the future, manufacturing is becoming less, relatively less important as the economy digitalizes and having an edge in technology becomes more important. Um, the China and the US, they are unchallenged technology leaders right now, but does Japan actually have any notable tech companies that would allow them to produce the goods of the future? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I think certainly, you know, Japan is, is very well known for some of its or older technology around automobiles and consumer electronics and so on. Um, and, you know, that, I guess, does stand out in, in, in a period where, you know, platform companies and so on do really get a lot of the attention from, from investors. Having said that, I mean, I, I think we there are a lot of, uh, you know, really cutting edge and, and world leading firms in Japan but they're often involved in, in the key sort of inputs to, uh, you know, future sort of driving technologies rather than the direct consumer facing ones, which is maybe why they don't get the attention of the you know, average uh, sort of, you know, individual investor or the average person on the street, uh, both in Japan and around the world. So I guess a couple of examples there, obviously, you know, people that have a lot of expectations for automation and, and particularly, you know, autonomous driving and things like that. Um, and so basically one of the, the world's leading uh, producers of, of sensors, uh, Kiens, which was just added to the, the Nikkei index uh, recently or will be added shortly, um, is actually the world's leading producer there. And I think, you know, Rupert will be pretty excited about that when he thinks about autonomous driving in his, his Tesla. Um, but there's, there's plenty of other, uh, you know, good examples there uh, of leading companies. For example, if we think about uh, NIDEC, which is the, the world's leader of uh, motors and so on that go into a wide range of things, including uh, robotics and, and, and you know, agriculture and also uh, you know, high-tech consumer electronics as well. And then a lot of other companies, uh, for example, the, the actual industrial robot makers like Fanuc and Yaskawa Electric are sort of the leading companies there. There are a lot of really, um, you know, vibrant and, and world-leading uh, growth firms in, in Japan that have the best technology, but they're probably not the, the things that most people outside of Japan would think about on, on an average, uh, you know, when they think of Japan. The size of those companies is sort of large, the sort of, you know, the exciting companies you're talking about are sort of a large relative to the size of the total Japanese market, or if you're buying Japanese equities, are you really just buying, you know, lots of big banks? Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. I mean, some of those, so, so Kian's the example I, I just had, even though they've only just been added to the, the Nikkei 225, they're actually one of the most valuable uh, companies here in, in Japan. And most of the other examples I provided, they're also, uh, you know, what some of the larger uh, tech, uh, sorry, not larger tech, like um, sort of companies listed here. Um, but uh, I mean, certainly you, you do raise a valid point. I mean, you know, a couple of the large banks in Japan, so Mitsubishi UFJ and, and, and the uh, SNBC, for example, do have quite large weights in the index still. But on the whole, I think, you know, certainly as, as, as the financial sector in Japan has uh, probably not fared as well with the uh, challenges uh, of, of a declining population and, and, and slow growth, it's, it's, you know, sector weighting has declined um, over time, so it's less of a, a thing to really um, worry about. 
Um, and so, yes, like talking about things made in Japan, high-tech products, I bought two years ago a massage chair. Uh, designed in designed in Japan, made in China. It's it's fantastic. Uh, keeps me going in the evenings. Um, just, I mean, we're not going to sort of major on macro things, but one of the things that people think about when they think about Japan is the aging population, uh, and there is a view that that will hold back economic growth, but perhaps uh, also uh, uh, equity markets. I mean, is is that is that is that valid, or is it sort of irrelevant? In the context of the companies that that investors perhaps should be buying, yeah, I mean, I think that it's probably overemphasizes a reason not to to invest in Japan. And I also do wonder whether the demographic trends that we've seen here are, are pretty much all priced in. Um, I mean, Japan is certainly not alone with an aging population. It's something that faces pretty much all the developed countries uh, around the world, and now actually is is something that is a serious issue for other parts of Asia, like Korea and China as well. Um, but I mean, it's certainly a well-known story, and, and I think it's it's probably had its biggest impact on the the Japanese economy uh, and potentially the equity market already. Whereas for a lot of the other countries, they're still yet to feel that impact. Um, certainly, I think in in Japan that in the past there was a lot of hesitancy towards um, migration and so on, um, but that does seem to have changed. I mean, in the in the last ten years or so, that the number of foreigners has increased in Japan by about one million people. While at the same time, the total population has declined by about 3 million. So the proportion of, of, of you know, foreigners here is significantly larger. But uh, I mean, for example, in the past where, you know, foreign graduates of a Japanese university would have had to go back to their home country. Now, a lot of them are, are staying on and, and finding jobs here because the Japanese companies, you know, think that they're, they're highly valuable and, and they want to you know, retain their skills for their, their future opportunities. But in terms of, of uh, you know, valuations, I mean, I mentioned that maybe this, all this bad news is priced in, but Japanese equity is one of the big appeals to them, or of them really, is the valuation. If you compare the, the Japanese equity market to World X Japan, that uh, they trade on a discount depending on, on how you measure it. If you're measuring on a price to earnings basis of about 25% or on a price to book basis of about 60%. You could probably argue that some of that may be justified on the basis of a lower uh, long-term structural growth rate. But again, as I mentioned earlier on, that Japan or Japanese companies do earn a significant proportion of their earnings outside of Japan. So it's hard to justify a valuation gap uh, that large, in my view. Okay, so th thank you for that. So, so perhaps in summary, uh, we could say that the outlook for the Japanese economy um, is not especially exciting. Um, perhaps, you know, hasn't changed, continue to grow a bit, but perhaps not that different to what we've seen over recent decades, but that its equity markets potentially represents more opportunities uh, as an exciting way to play uh, uh, robotics and, and all sorts of new technologies um, and levered off uh, uh, Asian supply chains. So with that, I think I'm going to bring this to a close, but I'm going to thank you, uh, Chris in London, uh, Cameron in Japan, uh, and thank and, and we'll move on to the next topic. And finally with us today is Rachel Valensky, CIO of Investment Solutions in Canada, and Ash Doherty, Senior Portfolio Manager in our Investment Solutions team. And they're going to talk about high yield. Now, credit spreads are very tight with high yield bonds and indeed investment grade credit having performed very well over the last 12 to 18 months. But does that mean that returns on a look forward basis are going to be poor or are they going to continue to perform well? Ash, I'm going to start with you today. Why do you think high yield is going to produce decent returns going forward? 
Thanks, Rupert, and delighted to be the, the bull in the China shop here today. So when we think about the high yield and sub-investment grade universe, the main thing that investors really have to think about and be worried about is defaults. Are you going to get compensated for the risk you're taking in this market? We know now, as at the end of August, that default rates have plummeted since last year. Uh, and we're now looking at defaults on a nominal basis of about 2.8% when we look at kind of the recent data coming out of Credit Suisse. On a go-forward expectation, over the next 12 months, estimates suggest that defaults are going to be as low as about 1% on a nominal basis. Again, looking at data coming from JP Morgan. So that's a very, very low go-forward default expectation, thus giving you confidence in the system and confidence in your investments. The second reason why I quite like high yield and continue to like it today is really that company balance sheets are quite strong and well capitalized. They have a high level of interest uh, rate coverage, uh, and that suggests that they have a high level or, or high capacity for uh, in order to service their, their, their debts on an ongoing basis. And the last reason I would say is that ultimately the high yield market as a whole has become higher quality in general since last year. And that's really because we've seen a large number of fallen angels, the companies falling down from investment grade into the high yield market. Uh, and so that is increasing the overall quality of the market uh, at the margin and thus, uh, you know, giving, again, greater confidence to investors moving into that space. And the last point I would, I would say before uh, Rachel uh, dives in uh, with some of her views is really, you know, just to remind investors that the types of companies that are in the high yield market aren't always necessarily small. So let's think of Netflix. Netflix is a high yield company. Many, many uh, investors are very familiar with Netflix. They invest heavily in Netflix on the equity side. It is one of those fang stocks. But the company itself is 250 billion in size, a very large, substantial organization. So again, these are not small microcap companies. They're good, well-established institutions uh, with plenty, uh, plenty of debt servicing capabilities. Well, thank you for that. And I've got a Netflix account, so um, I'm glad I'm contributing to that valuation. Now, Rachel, um, why? I mean, they, they all made seem fairly sensible points there from Ash. Why do you disagree? Um, I First of all, I agree that those are sensible points. Second, as an anecdote, when this podcast was contemplated, um, they had to reach out to somebody like myself with most, more of an equity background because uh, there were no fixed income bears to take that argument on. So in itself, it's a bit of a bearish sign to me. No, no, Rachel, you, you were top of the list. You were top of the list. Don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, so so cut me some slack here. Um, so my, my argument is really I can't disagree with any, uh, any of the points that Ash made. However, it really boils down to valuation. And if history is any predictor of the future, valuations at some point do kick in. So let's examine what we have. We have a fairly skimpy yield by historical standards in absolute and relative uh, terms. And remember, there's two components to a high yield valuation. There's the credit spread that compensates you for defaults, uh, be as low as may be. And um, they sit on top of the curve. So you're getting the spread over a risk-free rate. And by historical standards, it's fairly low. So what does it mean? It means that you're not really compensated on any, for any adverse events. The other thing that is of interest is that investors have been taking notice. The uh, 
fund flows into the high yield market in the U.S. have been weak. And in fact, in the U.S., year to date, they were slightly negative. So why is it important? Investors have been taking notice of some of the clouds that are gathering on the horizon and actually buying loans. And what the tells us is that investors are looking for a little bit of a safer asset class because loans traditionally have been better underwritten and had higher recovery rate. So let's talk about those clouds that I mentioned. First, uh, as strong as the data, economic data has been, it has been weakening. This morning alone, for instance, as this podcast is being recorded, we had had a pretty negative print on the job report. So maybe, perhaps, it's the Delta variant effect, or maybe it's something more than that. For the first time in many years, we actually have to contend with inflation. And inflation means that central banks and the Fed at the helm signal to the market that they are um, that they are inclined to taper. So in the past, whenever you had the clouds on the horizon, you get you got the what you call the Fed put and the curve part of the high yield valuation would have helped offset spreads blowing out. So this time around, I don't believe we can count on Fed largesse. And we have to take notice of the clouds that are gathering on the horizon. So, I mean, Rachel, I, I, you told us earlier it was your birthday, I think, tomorrow. So you're you're not sounding terribly happy uh, given it's your <laughs> birthday. But, you know, get, get yourself a present. Um, Ash, any thoughts on uh, what Rachel has just said, particularly around, I think, the, the fact that there's not a lot of um, sort of protection and that spreads and, and yields and so on are pretty low. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so so look, there's always a conversation to be had around yield, particularly for our investors, many of whom are pension plans or endowments, trusts and foundations, and so have um, uh, payments and liabilities that they do need to feed. So when we talk about yield and yields being low, we're still looking at about a 4.5% yield uh, in the high yield space. And just to put it into perspective, in investment grade, you're only getting about one and a half. So you've got a 3% uh, differential there between the two. As you, If you look a little bit further into high yield, yes, there's there's higher, uh, higher yielding names within uh, the universe. So if you go down to lower quality triple C rated assets, you can seek out yields still around 9%. As you go up the quality spectrum, that yield is going to fall. But by and large, a 4.5% yield is still a very, very healthy contribution um, to your overall portfolio. And as I mentioned prior, when default risk is so low, um, there's really little to be lost out on there in terms of um, uh, adding that into into your into your remit. When you um, say you say little to be lost out, I mean in past sort of default cycles, you know, if we had a really big default cycle, that would blow that four and a half out of the water, wouldn't it? When we think about recent default cycles, so let's think about 2020, defaults reached up upwards of six six to eight percent realized, but they've dipped down quite uh, drastically. And I think the support that has come in from the central banks, uh, as Rachel has already mentioned in recent time, is very supportive, in particular for this part of the market. And that confidence is there now. Um, when we think about a net of default outcome, if you're looking at that default around that one percent number, you can kind of bake that into your 
returns. So let's think of a, a yield then reducing down to about three to three and a half percent. That's still, again, a healthy yield to be added in there relative to other asset classes like investment grade, where you're only going to be bringing home less than half that amount. Okay, I mean, so, so I mean, Rachel, Ash has talked through the sorts of yields. I mean, it's not a forecast, but the sort of returns you might get under various default scenarios with returns on government bonds and cash likely to be somewhere near the, the zero reason. Let's keep zero level. Let's keep it simple. I mean, high yield is a bit more, you know, notably more attractive than that, surely. And, and that is indeed the case. So let me talk about the default. Uh, yes, they're indeed low. They're circa 1%. And um, that's probably uh, the good news is that as good as it gets, it's also the bad news is also it's probably as good as it gets too. So um, first of all, you you have to remember that those level of defaults and and historically for comparison, it's been around 4% average. So um, 1% default rates, they're also, in my opinion, artificially low because the issuance is very high. And what does it mean? Companies are able to go and refinance instead of defaulting. So that's one interesting point. Now, let me give you an example of what I mean by as good as it gets. So year to date, spread compression has been about uh, uh, 50 basis points in the high yield space. Now, defaults have gone from above 3% to 1%. So typically, that type of default decline should have given you circa 100 basis points spread compression. So why did we only get 50 basis points? And the reason is the markets are forward-looking. So investors have been anticipating the good economic news and a lot of that is probably uh, sputtering at the moment. And the, the, the spread compression that we would have, the effect on the price just didn't materialize. So as we know, the markets are forward-looking mechanism. And in my opinion, a lot of the good news has been already baked into this asset class. Now, the asymmetry is, uh, is a flip side of this argument. So say uh, defaults, would go back to 2% to 3%. So the price effect would be probably around 5% decline in price repricing uh, if we revert more to a normal uh, state. Okay, well, thank you for that, both of you. And I'm going to bring this to a close. Um, and well, first of all, I'm going to say happy birthday to you, Rachel, tomorrow. Thank you. Um, and hope you have fun. Um, and I think you're being a bit too miserable on the economy, but uh, <laughs> I will, I'll share our house view as it is at the moment. Uh, and in terms of our house view, we think there are valid points made both by Ash and by Rachel. On the one hand, if you're a buyer of high yield bonds, about the only thing you care about is defaults. Does something default or, or doesn't it? Um, and we think that defaults for a while to come, not just a few quarters, but possibly and probably beyond that, defaults are going to be pretty low because we expect the economic recovery will to continue. And if there is some kind of faltering in the economy, for whatever reason, uh, then you would be, you know, expect further fiscal support from the administration, um, but also uh, lower interest rates. And therefore, we think defaults will be will be pretty low. 
But we are very wary and noticeable, you know, very conscious of the low spreads that are available at the moment, uh, and that the upside from here is not, is not that dramatic. Um, as Rachel said, spreads might tighten a little, but they can't tighten a lot. And if for some reason uh, we're wrong on the economic outlook, whether it's because of COVID, whether it's because of something completely different that we haven't uh, thought about, uh, then high yield bonds might do, do, do badly. And so whereas over about the last 18 months or so, we've been uh, uh, pretty optimistic on the outlook for high yield, in the most recent past, we've become a lot more, somewhat more cautious and approach a sort of a neutral weighting. Central case is that high yield does better than cash, um, but the risks are perhaps slightly skewed uh, in the event that something, something happens. Uh, but hopefully nothing will happen bad before your birthday, Rachel. Um, so I wish you well for that. Thank you. And thank you very much, everyone else, for joining us. If you'd like to discuss any of these topics further, please contact us at ctci at mercer.com. That is ctci at mercer.com. Thanks once again. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal, tax, or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. References made to high yield default rates are sourced from Bloomberg.